Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. So uh, we're so very happy to have Lydia here. Um, her work has appeared in the O. Henry Prize stories, the Best American Mystery Stories, One Story, Glimmer Train, and elsewhere. She was a Wallace Stegner <laughs> Fellow at Stanford, a fellow at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and a recipient of an Elizabeth George Foundation grant. She graduated from Princeton. Any other Ivies here? Anyone? Anyone? <laughs> yes? We got uh, Princeton, Princeton folks? And she received her MFA from the University of uh, Michigan. We're very happy that she lives right here in Los Angeles with her husband. Where is her husband? Right There's her husband. So glad. You know, so supportive, so supportive. And I want to say, I'm, uh, I'm sure you've read her, seen her read many times. Many times. Many times. <laughs> And I just want to say, I, I will say, you know, I've been doing this for a number of years, and I always see the spouse, and we always forgive the spouse when during the reading, they start to look around the store. <laughs> <laughs> because we know that relationship and the support has been... Has, He's has heard it all before. ...for years. <laughs> um, and then a little bit, we'll be uh, joined by Asia Gable. What a beautiful, bright yellow. I just love this yellow. Uh, her writing has appeared in The Cut Bomb, The Kenyan Review, Glimmer Train, and elsewhere. A former cellist, she re, uh, earned her BA at Wesleyan and her MFA at the University of Virginia and a PhD in literature and creative writing from the University of Houston. Uh, she has been the recipient of, fellow, of fellowships from Sewanee Writers Conference, um, Literary Arts Oregon, and the Fine Arts Work Center. So um, we're so very happy to have uh, very educated writers here <laughs> at Skylight. <laughs> so please welcome Lydia. <laughs> All right, thank you for that introduction. Um, and thank you to Skylight for having me here tonight um, and to Asia for reading with me. Uh, her bright yellow, beautiful book, The Ensemble, is brilliant and impossible to miss. It's behind the counter, so make sure you, you check it out. Um, I also wanna thank my parents who are front and center and flew all the way across the country to be here tonight. Um, let's see, okay, that's better. Uh, um, they have had faith in this project from day one through year one through year six, and I am so incredibly uh, grateful for the faith that they've had in it. Um, thank you to my editor, Emily Cunningham, who also flew across the country to be here tonight. Um, she is an absolute dream to work with, and I can't wait to work with her on whatever is next. Um, so I'm going to just start off by telling you a little bit about the novel, uh, and then I will read for a few minutes, and then... Asia and I will jump into the Q&A. Uh, so the novel is about two Russian brothers, Ilya and Vladimir. Uh, Ilya is a brilliant student, and he is tapped by a teacher uh, for an exchange program that will bring him to Louisiana for a year of high school. Uh, and Vladimir, his brother, has always sort of been a ne'er-do-well, um, very magnetic, but also sort of drawn to trouble. Um, and Vladimir is accused of a series of murders in their hometown of Berlozhniki, which is a fictional town uh, in Russia. And um, when Ilya arrives in America, uh, Vladimir has been imprisoned, and Ilya is convinced of his innocence. Um, so there's not too much else that you need to know about the passage I'm going to read, except that... Maria Mihalovna is uh, Ilya's English teacher, and she's given him some extra work uh, to help him with his English studies, including a set of tapes called Learn English, The Adventures of Michael and Stephanie. Um, and Ilya has started listening to these tapes way more than is necessary and is really into them. Um, and also, uh, Vladimir's girlfriend's name is Axinia, and her best friend is Lana. And then there's a really minor character named Timofey, who is Ilya's grandmother's love interest. Um, so he'll, he'll crop up for about one second. Um, okay, here we go. Let's see. Okay. Chapter six. Immersed as he was in his studies, Ilya did not notice exactly when Vladimir first started cutting school. Babushka shooed them out the door at the same time each morning, 
And they still walked uh, together across the Pechora, up Ulitsa past the little wooden church where their father and Yerushka were buried and where Babushka lit her candles, past the abandoned Komsomol headquarters to school number 17. They parted ways at the front doors, and Ilya assumed that Vladimir went inside to his classroom, just as Ilya did, but apparently he did not. Is Vladimir sick? Maria Mihailovna asked him one day. For the second year in a row, Vladimir was in her introductory English class, a class that Ilya had skipped altogether. Not knowing what else to do, Ilya said that yes, Vladimir was sick. Then Aksinia and Lana started sneaking to Ilya's classroom. They'd stare in through the windows and the door, making V's of their fingers and flicking their tongues between them. Ilya would ask to go to the bathroom, his face burning, and when he emerged, they'd giggle uncontrollably. Their hair was gauzy around their faces, the purple under their eyes somehow beautiful. They were always out of breath. Where's Vladimir, they'd ask. Every time, Ilya hoped for a different question, something to do with him, not Vladimir. We need help with our English paper, or let's go to the internet kebab, or there's a party later at the tower. But it was always, where's Vladimir? Where's that asshole brother of yours? And when Ilya didn't know, they'd leave him in the hall, clutching his bathroom pass. Another teacher gave Ilya a folder labeled homework for September to bring home to Vladimir. Ilya slipped it into his backpack, and that night, once their mother had left for work, once Babushka had made up the couch for them and was snoring softly in the bedroom, he handed it to Vladimir. It's from Nikolai Grigorievich, Ilya said, the math you've missed. Vladimir opened the folder and flipped through the pages. He looked at them closely, not casually, as though they were written in a code he might be able to unlock if only he knew the key. And in that moment, Ilya wanted so desperately for school to be as easy for his brother as it was for him. Then Vladimir dropped the folder onto the carpet and began to undress for bed. Ilya stared at it. What should I tell him? Vladimir shrugged. Tell him you gave it to me. He fell backward onto his pillow, pulled his socks off by their soggy toes, and began detailing his latest exploits with Axinia, and Ilya picked the folder up and slipped it back into his backpack. The next afternoon, after he'd finished listening to Michael and Stephanie, after he'd done his translation for Maria Mihailovna and all of the homework for his other classes, he began to chip away at Vladimir's math. He didn't do it out of loyalty, but out of this new anxiety that hit him sometimes like a fever. He was worried for Vladimir, Worried when Vladimir was not home in the afternoons. Worried even when Vladimir was home. Was right next to him on the couch, watching one of Babushka's telenovelas with one hand stuffed in a bag of chips and the other stuffed down his pants. It took Ilya a week to do all the makeup work. All those lines and figures. All those neat totals. He'd had to teach himself the basics of trigonometry. And when he finally presented it to Nikolai Grigorievich, the teacher said, That ship has sailed. Vladimir began skipping dinner, too, and Babushka would groan and say, the boy never eats, or he's with that girl, the one whose parents are dead and the sister who's a you-know-what. Aksinia, Ilya would say, because he loved saying her name, and because the fact that such a beautiful girl liked Vladimir seemed to him something to be proud of. Ilya's mother would bite a radish in half and make a bitter face and say, what am I supposed to do, put him in a straitjacket? And it was true that there was little she could do. She worked the night shift, slept during the day. She was with Vladimir and Ilya for only two exhausted hours in the evening and one exhausted hour in the morning. He'll be fine, Timofey would say, his nostril hairs twitching. Just give him some time. He's running around. It's what boys do. Then they'd all look at Ilya with this awkward sort of appreciation because, of course, he would never do the things that boys do. Every once in a while, after Ilya was already in bed, half asleep, listening to Michael and Stephanie, Vladimir would poke his head through the door and say, Ilyusha, I'm sleeping at Sergei's tonight, or night-night, Bratik, I won't be home until late. His breath would be a beery fog, and behind him, in the light of the hall, Ilya would see Sergei and Aksinia and Lana, their hands clamped over their mouths to keep from laughing, to keep from waking him, as though he were a baby. Vladimir would click the door shut, and he would hear their voices echo up the stairway, and there were times, and this is what Ilya would remember when he would simply not let the worry in, when he would not wonder where Vladimir was going or what Vladimir was doing, when he would stretch his legs out and revel in the expansiveness of the couch. It felt decadent and very adult to be sleeping alone, to have two pillows. The refinery lights sparked on the ceiling and he would imagine that they were city lights and that he was in his own apartment in Moscow or St. Petersburg 
and that in the morning he would be heading to work, not school. Those nights, Ilya slept like the dead, but he'd wake, and in just the way your tongue finds the tender spot where you've bitten your cheek, his mind would find Vladimir. <laughs> Thanks, guys. <laughs> All right. Thank you. An introduction. Um, I had to, I don't know if you know this, but I had to like ask a friend of a friend of a friend to get this galley for me because I was so desperate I'm to flattered. read it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and when it came, I, I think I read it in like three days, just tore through it. Um, wow, there's so many people here. <laughs> I haven't looked out yet. That's amazing. Um, and it's 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 a beautiful, beautifully written literary thriller, um, and it it is so evocative of um, Russia in this way that I know you know I know a little bit about Russia, mm -hmm. but there's it's it's a, by the end of the book, you have lived in this poverty-stricken, remote, cold, um, you know, Stalin-ruined town, and. Um, I want to know how you, Lydia Fitzpatrick David, <laughs> who doesn't <laughs> seem to have much experience with, you know, the un druggy underworld of Russia, um, how you came to write this this particular story as your first novel. Um, yeah, I think a lot of people are wondering that, um, and. Uh, I do have a little bit of experience with Russia. So my mom is a Russian historian right here um, in the flesh. And uh, she lived and studied in Russia during the Cold War. Um, and, you know, Russia was kind of a presence in my house growing up, I think, in a way that it wasn't for most kids of the 80s. It was a place that was, was very much revered. Um, and my mom wrote um, a book about commerce in Russia in the 1800s. And, um, you know, I remember her working on that book. And I remember kind of thinking of Russia as this place where... Um, that, that occupied her mind. And I think we're always kind of fascinated by those places, those passions that occupy our parents. Um, and then uh, when I was eight or nine, we hosted two Russian students. Um, so we had two little girls come and live with us um, for a little while. And uh, they were six and nine. And the youngest, the six-year-old, was a brilliant piano player. Uh, she, um, she, her stay with us culminated in this duet that she performed with Rostropovich at the Kennedy Center. Um, yeah. I know Rostropovich. Uh, yeah, you heard of him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and she was so tiny that I remember she, um, she played the piano standing up because otherwise her feet couldn't reach the pedals. Um, and yeah, I mean, I was just totally in awe of her, of that performance. Um, but also of, you know, the bravery it took for her to come halfway around the world and stay with us and um, to leave her parents and leave her family and her home. And I think that sort of um, the idea of those opposing forces of like adventure and um, the people we need to leave behind in pursuit of it uh, really stuck with me. And that that bubbles up in Ilya's character. Um, and then uh, I traveled to Russia in the 90s, um, which was a really chaotic time there. It was in the wake of Perestroika. Um, and, you know, I knew in sort of a, like, middle school civics way what that meant. Hi. Um, I just, like, keep seeing all these familiar faces. It's so delightful. Um, uh, but I, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't prepared for the forms that that would take. Um, and it was really quite, quite startling. Uh, you know, one morning we woke up and there was a dead body in the courtyard of our apartment. Um, and we had a Geiger counter um, to measure the radiation and the food that we would cook. Um, and, you know, at one of the street markets that we visited, there were old men and women selling their, their Soviet medals. And, um, you know, all of that was, was heartbreaking. But there was also this real force of hope there. Um, it felt like a place on the verge. And I didn't, you know, quite know what it was on the verge of. But the dynamism of it stuck with me, too. Um, and I think found um, an outlet in both Ilya and Vladimir's stories. I mean, I think they are kind of representative of the very different um, paths that emerge from Perestroika. Uh, so um, so th that's some of my, my own personal experience with Russia. And then I actually went back with my mom um, as my translator on a research trip uh, in grad school. Um, and that I was working on a different project that was set in Russia at the time, but, um, but was very much focused on kind of gathering those details that would later inform the novel. 
Yeah, that's interesting that you say that it's um, a city or it felt like a place on the verge or that it was so, um, there was moments of desperation, but it also felt like hope. Yeah. Because that is very much the description of this book. These people come from a place where they're, where hope isn't, um, they're not born with hope the way Americans might be. Um, and so uh, the, there's a real sense of longing between these between for Ilya f- um, for something that nobody else is really possible for for anybody else in that town and especially his brother. Um, I wonder for you, like, how did you keep that sense of hope as you were writing? Sometimes I ask my students to if they're writing novels to like have a uh, an artifact or like a kernel that they keep with them, mm-hmm. like a scene or a piece of music or something so that they know what they're writing towards. And I'm wondering if you had a, a heart or a center for this book. Um, yeah, you know, I think I think uh, in more kind of like a more pragmatic answer is that I feel like it's just kind of classic craft to always have a character wanting something. Mm-hmm. So if you have a character who has become devoid of hope, you have a character that doesn't feel like they can really be dynamic in any way. So I think it was important to me to, to have in my mind um, – you know, what each character's individual hopes might be based on their circumstances in the moment. And, you know, Ilya's hopes clearly are, like, the largest in the book. Um, but that doesn't necessarily preclude Vladimir from having from having his own hopes. Um, and, you know, the the larger the gap between the hope and the, the potential to achieve it, you know, the more heartbreak you have for the reader. So that's definitely a, a gap that I... Um, tried to manipulate in various ways throughout the book. Yeah, it's super heartbreaking, (laughs) which is unusual for um, something that can be described as a literary thriller. I kind of wanted to talk to you about that, too, because you, in your email this morning, you sent out this lovely email about the book, and you described it as a literary thriller, and I hadn't really been thinking about it that way. Um, It's very much a coming-of-age novel. It's an immigration story. Um, did you think of it in those terms when you were writing it? I definitely thought of it in terms of a mystery. Yeah. Um, I set out to write a mystery, and I think, you know, what sort of blindsided me was how much more it became. The mystery took a form that I wasn't necessarily expecting. Um, so there are murders. There is a plot to solve those murders. Um, but there's also this sort of um, unveiling of of the relationship between Ilya and Vladimir and of um, the depths of both characters. And I think that, to me, turned out to be sort of the more satisfying of the mysteries. And, you know, through the course of, of solving both mysteries, Ilya comes of age. But I definitely didn't necessarily intend for it to be a coming-of-age yeah. story. That, I think, just kind of came hand-in-hand hand with his character and his age and, you know, the the sort of, like, fire he had to go through to get to the other side. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's part of the beauty of this book. It's, like, so many different kinds of books. You can read it however you want. Um, and I know we've talked a lot about Russia, but I also yes. want to talk about the other setting in this book, yeah. too, which is suburban Louisiana. Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. Hot, hot swimming pools, mosquitoes mean kids in high school yeah. Louisiana. Yeah. What what how, what drew those two locations together? Uh so, um uh, my dad is from Louisiana. Um so in a way the there's like the two storylines are kind of like the strands of my DNA. Just, you know, I didn't I didn't actually move that far from home, I feel like in either one. But uh yeah, so my dad's from Louisiana. It's a place where a lot of my family lives. So, I'm really familiar with it, but um it's not a place that I know like I know the place I grew up, which was exactly what I wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that uh, it helped me to be aligned to a certain degree with Ilya's level of unfamiliarity with the place. So, um, you know, it's hard to see the place that we're from with any degree of objectivity. But um, I feel like I had the right amount of familiarity and also the the amount of distance to allow for a little objectivity with Louisiana. Yeah. Um, yeah. They're also bound by, um, um, you know, uh, en- like they both have ties to energy in yeah. that sense too, yeah, which yeah. I thought was like very cool. Yeah, they're both um, – so so both the Louisiana <laughs> passages and the passages in Berloshniki um, take place near a refinery. Both places are petro-economies. Um, 
and you know, I was struck by that, and also by the um, the fact that, like, despite these huge, this the huge amount of um, of wealth in these natural resources, there isn't a big trickle down. Like, there's still a big problem of poverty in both of these communities. And as I wrote more and more about them, I feel like a lot of these similarities started to to come out to me. Like at first, I had kind of created them in opposition to each other, um, but you know, the poverty addiction, um, the petro economies, like, uh, there was a lot that began to, um, to echo. And I think when you're writing and you start to feel those echoes happening, that's when you know that you're on the right track. Yeah. There's, I, I want to ask you about that too, because we have, um, it, it seems so tight. There's, there's poverty, there's energy, there's, um, brotherhood, um, there's these murders you have to solve. There's a lot going on. There's many generations in Russia. Um, it's so tightly plotted. I struggle with that, and I wonder if you can tell me how to do it. <laughs> I, you know, was uh, it like I a definitely beautiful can't. mind, like window, or what's, how um, did you do it? I, I mean, I do have a moment, a, a beautiful mind-ish moment. Uh, so, no, I can't tell you how to do it, okay? <laughs> I was wandering in the dark for a long time. Um, I think that, uh, okay, so, so, um, I did pull apart a couple books that I was sort of vaguely using as models, although when I tell you them, they'll seem like they have nothing at all in common with this book. So uh, Father and Son by Larry Brown and this book Citrus County by John Brandon. Um, I was kind of obsessed with the simplicity of the plot in both of those books because I was having so much trouble with the plot in my own book. So at one really dark moment in life, uh, we were living in Granger's parents' attic. Um, so it was dark for that moment. <laughs> I mean, for that for that reason, but also um, because I didn't know what to do about the plot of the novel. I uh, made these plot maps of both of those books on like one million index cards, and I put them all over the walls. And then his mom walked up into the <laughs> attic and she got this look on her face. Like, it's you know, like, when oh the, the detective walks into the serial killer's <laughs> den and is like, oh man, yeah. like, this is bad. Um, who's in my attic? Uh, so, um, so, you know, that, that helped me in a very, in a very general way to just like breaking plot down into digestible chunks and realizing that, um, if I can do that for somebody else's book, there must be a way to do it for my book. Um, but but that is a long way of saying that, you know, no, I did not plot well. I did not outline. I did not have a map. Outline. Nothing. And I wish I had because for the first year and a half or so, I was basically brainstorming in long form. I mean, I wrote probably six different hundred page beginnings to this book that are languishing in a drawer and will never amount to anything. Um, like I have all these beginnings in a drawer. I don't have a novel in a drawer, which seems way more useful <laughs> to me. Um, but, uh, you know, once I hit on Ilya's character, um, the novel really got legs. Um, and I knew that I was, I was heading in the right direction. And for a while there, I was writing sort of a couple chapters ahead. Um, so I did have that sense of like, okay, I know what I want to happen, you know, in, within these 30 pages. And that felt really good. Um, and then I kept doing that until I got to the end, only the end was terrible, like abysmal, made no sense. It was really wow. not good. Um, <laughs> and I felt really betrayed. You know, I feel like there's a lot of sort of like spiritualization of the writing process. Like the muse will sing to you yeah, and the yeah, character yeah. will lead you. And I was like, well, what the hell? <laughs> like it led me to a terrible ending. Um, so that was a really, another really dark plotting moment. Um, and I just stared at the novel without writing a word for about six months. Um, and then I hit upon something that I think will help with the next book, um, which is that I, I separated the strands of narrative. So I separated all the Louisiana chapters and all the Russia chapters. And I looked at them with an eye towards, you know, the necessities of fiction. Like each one had to have an arc. Each one had to have tension. Each one had to have resolution. And once I had narrowed my focus in that way, something clicked and it became a lot easier to deal with the two strands. Um, sadly though, as I'm sure you know, when something's wrong at the end, it usually means something's wrong really far upstream. Yeah. So that makes it seem easier than the, the, the following years actually were. There was a lot of revision um, after that, but you know, I felt a lot more comfortable that the plot was, was then going to work out. Um, 
that really shows yeah. in this because it is an alternating chapters, Louisiana from Russia. And usually when that happens in a book, there's one setting that you're sort of like, oh, I got to get through this setting so I can get yeah. back to like Russia or something. Yeah. And then I didn't feel that with this book, yeah. which makes it very Well, that's awesome. great to hear yeah. because in the drafting, I felt it for both both sides at yeah. various <laughs> times. So that's a relief. So yeah. what was the first seed that you wrote that ended up in this book? Do you remember? Um, yeah, I do. The first chapter of ba- – uh, well – that actually ended up in the book yeah. is the first chapter of, of Ilya's backstory um, in Berlozhniki is pretty much verbatim. Oh, cool. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like and it's funny, like the book has changed so much that when I come across one of those passages that was there from, you know, when I first started writing like six oh, years yeah. ago, it's like an old friend. I'm like, oh, you're, you yeah. know, you're still here. Like you're still alive. This is great. Yeah. 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 Writing publishing a book is in some way having this record of many your many different selves out there yeah. in the world, the people that you were when you wrote that, and it's sort of That's extremely scary. vulnerable. Yeah. 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 Um, please like all of me. <laughs> um, uh, I just, we can move on from Russia, but I'm so curious about yeah. how you, how you research. I know you went with your mother, yeah. but like, what else did you use yeah. as research? It feels um, so vivid. Yeah, so I think, you know, uh, I sort of used ex- my my trips to Russia as a jumping off point. And then I started reading a lot about Russia during those, the, those years, the nineties and the early two thousands as a way to kind of make sense of my experiences there. Um, I read political histories and economic histories and oral histories. Um, I don't know if anybody's read Svetlana Alexievich, but I'm a huge, huge, huge fan. Um, Voices from Chernobyl and also uh, Secondhand Time, which is a collection of oral histories about um, the, the, the wake of communism. Mm-hmm. Um, and it manages to give these like really intimate portraits, but also this sort of like panoramic view of the very divergent um, opinions on on that the collapse of communism. Um, so her book was hugely helpful. And then I um, I also really like to use photographs, both as research and inspiration. So this photographer Donald Weber has a series um, that he shot in Northwest Russia, and that was really really important to me in the writing of the book like I bought his chat book because I couldn't afford his prints and I cut them out and pasted them above my desk and like would just stare at them so a lot of those images like there's a moment in the book when a guy finds a car that's been buried under snow and that's like a Donald Weber photo that I'm describing and um yeah so and you know the places that he shot sort of merged into the inspiration for for Berlozhniki yeah yeah um, what about the, there's this drug that plays crocodile. a, crocodile plays a big role in this book. Yeah. How did you f- find out about so, that? So, um, I read, uh, I think I read some news articles about crocodile, um, you know, maybe a year into drafting the novel. For those of you who don't know, crocodile is like a synthetic heroin. It's, um, it's called poor man's heroin because you can make it with everyday supplies. It's extremely dangerous. The life expectancy of a crocodile addict is two years. Um, and it emerged in Russia in the 2000s. Um, and there were a million crocodile addicts. And sadly, there are not many crocodile addicts left anymore, in part because the government has now, now requires prescriptions for, for codeine, which is one of the ingredients in crocodile. Um, but uh, I, yeah, I read a lot of case studies about crocodile. I read a lot of articles about it. And then I also found um, a, another series of photos by this Italian photographer, Emmanuel Sartoli. Um, and he went to Russia and lived there for a couple months and befriended a group of 20-year-olds, some of whom were crocodile addicts, and they let him, um, you know, take pictures of them using the drug in their normal life. Um, and I think that that series was really important to me um, because sometimes when you get really deep in the research, it's easy to forget to be humanistic in the way that you portray these things, these issues. And so I think that, like, that, that those photos really sort of brought me back to that lens, to the particular versus the, the broad. That's yeah. what I was going to ask because um, this all sounds really heady. You know, we're talking about communism and drugs and energy. Um, but in the book, it's not – it doesn't feel that way. It feels quite good. personal. That's so that's, <laughs> how you, that's how you got there is through just making sure you yeah. have points. Yeah, and yeah. I think, you know, in asking myself the question of, of – um, what are the circumstances and choices that lead somebody to use a drug that is as harrowing as this one is? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, in in trying to answer those questions, I I dug pretty deep into yeah. 
the various characters, um, yeah. yeah, in the novel, yeah. Um, I have more questions I can ask, but uh, there's so many people here. I wonder if anyone has. We're going to open it up? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I will continue to oh, ask questions. Oh, we've got one, oh, yeah. Okay, yes. You know, um, the title came to me probably like two years into the drafting. So really early on, Ilya was not the protagonist. Uh, Sadie, who is another main character, was the protagonist. And um, the novel was set in Louisiana, which is her world. And then as soon as the the Berlozhniki chapters entered, I think th when I wrote that first chapter set in Russia, the title came to me in, you know, a, a description of the refinery. And it was it was there from then on. So originally yeah. it was going to be all in Louisiana? Um, so originally Sadie, I had written a short story with Sadie as the protagonist and I kind of felt like I had unfinished business with her, like this sense that there was something more there, something more to her story or her yeah. world. And like I was talking about all these beginnings in the drawer. Yeah. So those are the Sadie beginnings. I wrote one beginning where she's pregnant. Another In another beginning, she uh, the perspective alternates between her and her mom. Um, and in another one, there's there's another character who has, um, who has a point of view also. And um, I, I ultimately, like, kept hitting this mark where, like, like, 80 pages in, 100 pages in, where it just felt like the novel didn't have enough. Mm -hmm. um, and at that point, I introduced Ilya. And once I introduced him, he just took over. He, like, eclipsed her, her perspective really quickly. And I was drawn into his backstory sort of as a way to try to figure out, like, why am I so drawn to this guy? Like, what is it that I want to write about? And also... Partly, I was like, maybe I can get this out of my system. Like, yeah. maybe it will remain a Sadie novel. <laughs> and then, clearly, it didn't. Oh, so yeah. juicy. Yeah. Anyone else? Yes. Go, go. <laughs> Don't be scared. <laughs> Um, yeah, you know, I think I often write about things that I'm afraid of, um, and I don't mean that, um, I don't just mean crocodile, I, I, I write about, um, circum I guess, circumstances that, that scare me, I think as a way of trying to, like, purge them, um, although I don't think that that often works, especially when you're focusing on something for, like, six years, it tends to, to weasel its way into your brain, but, um, but yeah, I, uh, you know, there, there is, um, let's see, how do I put this, so Ilya is very protective of Vladimir, um, and, and, I think that that relationship is sort of loosely based on my relationship with my brother. My brother is nothing like Vladimir. He's in no way um, drawn to trouble. But my dad died when I was young, and I was very protective of him as a result in sort of a neurotic, crazy way in retrospect. Like, I would ask my mom to, like, get the phone number of whatever friend he was, you know, going to have dinner with. Just um, kind of crazy behavior. And I think that that sort of overprotectiveness um, and the flip side of it, which, of course, is fear and this, like, this fear that we can't protect the people we love, that that found, like, a, a, a root in, in Ilya's character. Ilya's character is rooted in that, in that same fear. And it's sort of the same with my short stories. I feel like I often am writing from a source of fear. Yeah. That's a um, really good question and a really good answer. Thank, yeah. thank you. I'm going to use that. Um, while we're talking about that question, I'm curious what your writing process looks like now. Um, do you mean like today? Because I didn't write. I didn't write anything today, <laughs> also, except on Instagram. I was quite busy on Instagram. <laughs> I mean, I mean, no one asked me this question before I published a book, too. So when they first asked me, I was like, um, I like, sit down right. at a desk. Yeah. But um, yeah, I mean, in general, like, how do you get into it? Yeah. So I think, um, uh, first of all, I write in bed, um, oh which is rare, but I don't know why it's really lovely and I recommend it. Um, <laughs> so I write in bed and I revise at my desk cause revision is really serious business. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I have like a laptop and I sit in my desk and I have like all these gross old cups of coffee on my bedside table and I just like slug away at them. And 
I um, have a really bad habit, which I don't recommend, of uh, revising and polishing everything I've written prior to writing a new word for the day. So this is sustainable with short stories, which is all I'd written previous to the novel. But with a novel, it's terrible, right? Like at a certain point, you're reading and revising 100 pages, so your whole writing day is used up. Um, So I had to kind of break myself of that. And also, when you do that, you can really trick yourself into thinking that something that is not good at all is good because it's polished. Um, So that happened to me with all of those really polished beginnings that are in the drawer. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so my process is I sit in my bed, I uh, revise what I've written the previous day, and then I try to hit the 500-word mark every day. Wait, I have a question. Yeah. You, you, you like, get dressed, and then you go back in your bed. Uh. I don't get dressed. Okay, I'm, all right. I just want to paint a picture. <laughs> I'm like the crazy lady at the bus stop with my kids, <laughs> fully pajama, the same gross mug of coffee <laughs> that oh follows me God. around all day. Yeah, no. I some. I mean, I guess sometimes I get dressed. I don't know. Granger can speak to this better than I can. <laughs> no, no. Um, okay, all right. But yeah, so okay. I'm I'm in the bed. I'm trying to hit the 500 word mark. A thousand would be a thousand words would be a really great day for me. Uh, I also have this thing called the calendar of shame, which, um, Tony Mara taught me. I don't know. Oh, I love him. Um, so basically you have a big calendar and if you don't hit your word count for the day, you put like this giant red X and then at the end of the month, it's just like staring at you. Um, and I have found shame to be a really good motivator. (laughs) My husband Um, just looked at me. He was like, like, you need that. that Yeah. 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 It doesn't work as well with parenting, sadly, (laughs) but, um, Yeah. (laughs) Wow, cool. Okay. All right. Yeah. Um, other questions about writing in bed or anything else? <laughs> yeah, in the back. Well. Ah, uh, great question. Um, you know, I think it, it changed. Uh, it, so I actually went through two, two different rounds of editing. First with my agent, which I think happens more and more now. Um, so my agent and I worked on it together for quite a while. She was um, part of that really dark time when I didn't know how to end the book. Um, and, you know, I think she helped me look at those those different plot lines, the, the two plot lines separately, and, and um, helped me figure that out. And then once Emily entered the picture, we did, I mean, I think we did pretty, pretty significant revisions. We um, had almost like a year before we delivered the book like a year before publication and and so for for 10 months we were going back and forth on um different edits especially like there was one character especially that we needed to iron out um yeah so I was lucky to have an editor with whom I saw eye to eye Mm -hmm. um and and yeah we really collaborated on on that and did a good job I think yeah. What when was the point when you felt like you were ready to I mean what, what finding an agent like when did that happen along this process? Um so I my uh agent found me which was very lucky. Um I don't think I would have been great at going out into the world and finding an agent. Um she read a short story of mine and emailed me. Um and then we talked on the phone and hit it off and yeah. That's it. And you and you had a complete draft, or you had no, 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 no. Um, when I signed with her, I had uh, maybe thirty pages of the novel, and I don't remember which incarnation it was, but it wasn't this one. Yeah. Um. So, but yeah. Yeah, you're I, I, you're really illustrating how long and complicated a novel writing and publishing process is. Which is, is it always? I'm hoping maybe not for the you know the next one. <laughs> well, I don't know. Anyone else know that? But yeah. It's why it's what I always want to tell people when they're like, "Well, when I retire, I'm going to write a novel," and I'm like, mm, I don't, "I'm not going to become a doctor when I retire." So, but yeah. <laughs> like, I like I that you know. full sass them. Yeah, <laughs> like it takes a lot of work and a lot of time. There are enough writers in the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Please, we need more doctors. Um, other questions? Yes. Hi. <laughs> oh, thank you, Kate. Yeah. Right. Um, 
Um, you know, I think it's kind of this thing that snowballs. Like, I feel like when you're writing well, you start to, and this is a this is a quote that I'm going to misquote, but you start to kind of see the whole world in the terms of the novel. So when you're really enmeshed in it and, and you're getting your 500 words and not feeling full of shame, I think, like, everything starts to fit into the story in one way or another. Um, and... Uh, yeah, you know, I'm not that writer. You hear about these writers who, like, have a terrible day if they don't write. Like, they can't function and they feel really bad. And I, like, have great days when I don't <laughs> write. Like, today has been awesome. Um, but, you know, I think that that um, especially when you're in the middle of, a, like, a project that's taken so long. Like, I was so incredibly eager to get to the end, either to be rid of it or to have it go out in the world. Like, one or the other at a certain point. Um it felt kind of like a, like I was being haunted by it. Yeah. Did that answer your question at all? Okay. Um, anyone else? What do you do when you get stuck? Um, I think, you know, and maybe this kind of answers Kate's question too. I, I, I tend to go to short stories. Like whatever is, um, is bugging me or making me stuck, whatever – I need a character to do or like how I need to move in time or whatever it is. I, I have certain short stories I feel like that I can call on and go to um, as models and I do that a fair amount. Yeah. Um, or, you know, different passages in books like uh, Michael Byers has this book, Long for This World, which which I'm obsessed with. It's a great mm. read. And um, he writes about high school with this sophistication that I, that I just love. And so I would go to his book a lot to be like, okay, like I want to – I want to, you know, talk about Ilya and Sadie hooking up. Like, how does one do that in a really, you know, sophisticated way? And so yeah. I think that there, there, there are models that I would use. But then, you know, a lot of other times you're just kind of stuck and take a walk around the block with my dog yeah. um, and just rest in peace. Yeah. Um, and then, ju- yeah, and then, you know, something, something gets unlocked. Yeah, I yeah. know. <laughs> Through There's you, Granger. So magic. <laughs> <laughs> um, as uh was mentioned in the introduction you have many accolades and much education and have worked for so long (laughs) that you know getting better at writing and writing more and publishing more is there was there a moment when you felt like you leveled up or unlocked something about writing or um you really figured something out or your writing changed um I no, I think it's I think, you know, I wish that were the case, but yeah. I think it's it's probably going to be an uphill battle the whole <laughs> way through, you know. I think that like yeah. each story is very different and with each story you have that same uncertainty of whether it'll work out and it's a good thing because if you don't have that, I feel like your writing can become complacent. Yeah. Um yeah, yeah. I think people often want to hear like, well, there's this moment where figured out how to write but it doesn't quite yeah no I mean I think I've gotten better and better and better like I wrote a lot of terrible stories in grad school um and I hope they never surface because these are versions of me that I don't want out there in the world I know yeah Yeah. Yeah. I think we have time for a couple more questions yeah hey Jordan oh okay let's go here first and then we'll do that You know, I was writing for, from a really young age. Like, I um, I kind of hate that answer when people say that because you want, you know, you want, like, some little kernel of something. But, no, I mean, I remember writing on, I guess it must have been my dad's computer, you know, when the paper had those little holes along the sides. And I would write, like, these epic novels about these rabbits that did exactly what my family did. And they were so boring and so, so long. And I think my mom really patiently read them all. Um, and yeah, you know, I, I wrote through high school, uh, through college. I, I think it's just something I've always done. And then I worked in publishing briefly, but it was really only just so I could like brush up, I feel like with writers and feel like I was part of that world. So, um, yeah. Yeah, me too. Yeah, yeah, Michael Crouch, yeah. Yeah. 
Um, you know, that was actually really exciting to me because I'm a big fan of Audible too. I would think I'm like a platinum badge or something. I don't know if you get those badges, but, um, (laughs) Granger is like even further down the Audible road than me. But, um, no, I listen a lot and we actually follow specific readers. Like it's that important to me. So I was really excited because Penguin Press gave me a choice. They sent me, I think five to seven different readers who had read the first chapter. So I got to listen to them. Um, and you know, especially with my book, there are, there are a fair number of Russian words in there. So like the pronunciation was really important to me and, you know, the intonation, I didn't want the reader to sound too old. Um, and, um, obviously I wasn't going to be the reader, um, which I'm really <laughs> relieved about. Um, so, so yeah, that was actually a really fun part of the process. We, I, I played all the different readers for my parents and Granger's parents and we all like picked our favorite and we all had the same favorite, which was nice. And, um, yeah, he's, he's a really great reader. That was like the most like fun that I had too. It was so fun. Like, oh, there's like no, I'm yeah, there's no pressure now. on me for this one. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, Carrie. <laughs> oh, thank you. I got to get so on there. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> that is good to know. Anyone else? Questions? Comments? Julie. Yeah. Yeah. So research is a really helpful procrastination tool. So I turned to research a lot when I was stuck and when I was bored. Um, And I mean, I could go down that rabbit hole kind of forever. Um, And uh, you know what? I did. I got bored a lot. I was also writing um, pretty much part-time because I have two little kids. Um, And so... You know, if I if I was bored of the writing for a day, I would put my ex of shame and like go hang out with my kids and hope that the next day was a little bit better. And I would also read, like read other people's books. Um, that to me always managed to inspire, even if it was something completely different from my own. Um, Do you have to yeah. be careful about what you read when you're writing? Like, yeah, I don't read stuff that's too much in the world. Um, what do you mean? I mean, I don't read things that feel like they're too similar to my project. Oh, okay. Um, I like to read stuff that feels different, and I also just like to read stuff that that is different from kind of my own desire in writing, like in general. Um, yeah. Because I feel like it, it, you know broadens my ideas of what I might do in future projects. Like I love George Saunders for the risks he takes and how, you know, everything he writes feels completely different and fresh. And, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, any last questions before I, I have a little lightning round question. Lightning round. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I just want to say this book is wonderful. You should buy it. You should buy it from skylight. Um, She'll be signing the books afterwards. Um, It's really great to come out to a reading and just participate in this process. So well done. But um, I have a little lightning round of questions that I stole from Vanessa Waugh. I always like to say who I stole it from. Um, To just end this on a fun note. Um, What is your favorite book from childhood? Um, hmm, That's a tough one. Okay. I... I wish I had a highbrow answer for this one, but I really liked this, like, terrible little book about the Gremlins movie. It was, like, an abridged, <laughs> like, just, like, a nasty little book, like, not even well abridged. And I, I would have my mom read that to me, like, all the time. Oh, my um, God. Confirmed. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's so funny. Yeah. Um, was there a book that you did not like but everybody else liked as a kid? Like, one you know you're supposed to like? Oh. Mm, that's tough. Um. I don't know. One that I was supposed to like that I didn't like as a kid. No, I was like pretty. Yeah, I feel like I was pretty on board with all books. Like if I was into the Gremlins abridged version. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Um, I can't remember one. What's a book that you wish you've written? Um, hmm. Uh, You know, I wish I'd written pretty much everything that Alice Monroe has written. So I'm just going to pick her fattest book which is the selected stories yeah yeah <laughs> okay all of her yeah stories. just yeah. all of it <laughs> um what's a book you're really looking forward to reading that you haven't read yet? um let's see I really want to read um terrible country by Keith Gessen mm. uh which I didn't read while I was working because, on my own yeah. yeah while I was working on my own novel it's set in in Moscow um and I yeah so I've been really excited to read that for yeah. a long time yeah 
Um, do you have a guilty pleasure book that you besides the Gremlins book? Oh, yeah, that's a pretty guilty one. Um, I let's see. Well, I listen to a lot of um, of thrillers and a lot of like post apocalyptic fiction. Those are my favorite to listen to. And recently, I listened to um, the Girl with the Gifts uh, or the Girl with all the Gifts, all the Gifts. Um, and I loved it. Like, I don't even feel guilty about it. It was amazing. <laughs> Granger and I would sit in bed, like with our headphones next to each other, not talking because we just wanted to like wow. get through. Yeah. So that was one I, I really, really enjoyed and don't feel all that guilty about. What yeah. about a guilty pleasure movie? Oh, all the movies I watch are guilty pleasure <laughs> movies. Um, I go to movies for something completely different from what I go to books for, which yeah. is weird. Um, but let's see. Um, I mean, Homeward Bound. What's that movie with the dog? <laughs> really? Like, I will cry to that movie infinity times. Oh <laughs> yeah. yeah, we watched that with my kids the other day. Oh. Yeah. Um, what's the weirdest thing about book tour or being interviewed about your book? Um, I mean, I'm only like one hour into the book tour, <laughs> so, so, so far so good. You can't offend I'll, me. I'll so. let you know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you'll have more. Um, and then is there... Um, this is my favorite question. What's okay. a book that you sometimes pretend to have read when people are talking about it, but you actually haven't read? Oh God, I'm like, who have I pretended with here? <laughs> um, okay, so I don't straight up lie about this book, but <laughs> I definitely do some like aggressive head nodding about Moby Dick, which oh. I haven't read. And I'm like, oh yeah, like, yeah, I've been yeah, on that ship. Yeah, I know what you're yeah, talking about, the yeah. white whale. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So maybe that should be the book I want to read next. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, well, thank you so much for yeah, coming. Yeah, thank you. This was great. Thanks. And thank, thank you to everybody for coming tonight. And let's thank Asia for a wonderful interview. Congratulations again. Congratulations again. Um, I go, wow, it's gotten more full. It's beautiful seeing this. Yeah. So what I'll do is I'll move all this stuff out of the way. I'll bring out a table where I can sh uh, sign behind. Uh, we have copies of her book available, of both of their books actually available at the register. We'd love it if you bought the books first before you got them signed. Um, <laughs> and if you, are a, if you are a member of the store, if you are a friend with benefits, uh, you always get a priority in the signing line. So just identify yourself to oh, me. Oh, really? Uh, yes, you do. So you always, if you're a friend, you get you get your book signed first. So, um, in addition to the in addition to this uh, uh, store, we also have the Arts Annex, which is just a few doors down. So please go visit that. Fashion, photography, theater, all of that stuff. So um, please enjoy the store, and thank you all very much for coming. Yay! Can I say one last thing? Also, feel free to. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.